Welcome to Sardisms, where we take great ideas and bring them together to have great conversations. In this episode, we speak with Jack of all trades, Tony Yates, digital director of Livy, who has a wealth of experience creating new software and products for the NHS. Tony played a critical role in building NHS 111 and went on to found Fix Digital. Tony is self-described as a computer lad who loves to use technology to fix people's problems in healthcare. Welcome. Well, how do we how do we start this thing then? What happens? Is it have you really never done podcasts before? Yeah, I've I feel never. like you should have done. But when we did the health tech professionals thing, you were saying that you were trying to sort of do more blog it. Like you you yeah. you remind me of um Babs, our CTO. You just sort of quietly get on with tech and she's always like, You go and do that thing, you go and do the Twitter stuff. And like she supports me in it, but she's like, You're the extroverted one. You go out and talk to people and she just likes to kind of like quietly sit back and do her thing. But you seem to be on a mission. Yeah. Well, I did the like so when I did the one 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 stuff back in, I don't know, well, like two thousand, I think, two thousand and ten. And when that were a concept that started, it was kind of like I had to focus on like the problem and the tech and everything. And then it were like, how do I how do I get people on board with this vision? And I had to go on the road around the country, going into all the 111 services, all the out-of-hours services, all the 999 services, stand up on stage, talk about these things, talk about my vision, what the architecture was going to be, how we were going to build it, all this stuff. And I think after that, I just burned out with talking to people. Mm. And, and I think it's mm. not that um, I can't do it or I feel uncomfortable doing it. I actually do enjoy it once I'm kind of in the flow and especially if it's something I'm kind of passionate about which I clearly was back then and still am in other areas now and uh yeah when it's in that space it's like it just flows easy but when it's like hey you're going on a podcast it's like a podcast that's <laughs> that's, that's like the internet <laughs> forever yeah 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 doesn't forget so better behave Tony thank you very much for joining us really appreciate it uh, can you tell us a little bit about your origin story, how you've ended up where you are? It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm excited. Um, yes, my origin story. So uh, it's a bit of a weird one, but I've kind of chopped it up into a couple of chapters. That's how I think of like the, the work I've done. And chapter one was a complete accident where I kind of were just looking for some part-time work while I were going to um, join the the Navy. That was the plan. And engineering were kind of like my focus, graduated, computer scientist, that was the kind of thing. And, and I just kind of felt an urge to go and join the military. Um, but it would always like, like in at the time, it was like a recruitment cycle. So you had to wait before you could um, join. You couldn't just turn up and be like, you know, chuck me on a boat, I'm off, I'm ready. Uh, so I just took a job at a hospital and uh, it was mainly to just help them deploy computers in the year 2000 it was just before the year 2000 actually and basically computers were taking off and you know they'd got like 10 or 20 of these things in the hospital um where people were using them other than the, the you know the the patient administration system and the laboratory system we're talking like desktop pcs and they didn't have many at all and uh, yeah they were trying to get these things out and it were taking them weeks and I was just looking at it thinking, this is this is nuts. It's taking forever to get these computers, all these values in these boxes that I've played with all my life and love and can solve real problems. And they're stuck in these cardboard boxes. And being a skint student, um, I only had one computer. And I suppose most people did. Um, and 
but I was fascinated by operating systems, fascinated by networks. Um, so having like one computer and needing to change the software on it all the time from Linux to Windows NT to Slackware to um, Windows 95 and, and then back again uh, when I didn't want to play games anymore and, and just keep switching the, the tech that I was working with. I used to image these computers all the time. So I didn't have to keep reinstalling the whole thing. And uh, it just struck me then, it was like, there's an easier way to solve this problem. I can set up the whole lot of them in one day and get them all out within a week rather than three per week, which it used to take us. Mm. I think I was hired to get 50 out in a three-month contract. And uh, yeah, I just kind of blitzed it all in you know, just over a week. And it was fantastic. And they're like, wow, this is great. And, and then it got me dead excited because I'm like, how? Like, look at this hospital. It's like got all these computers coming in and there's so many things I know how to do with them. I've got to, I've got to stick around and help do this. And I'm still in health tech now. He just kind of kept going. You never go. You never left. Never yeah. left. It just sucked me in. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am now. I'm like, missed Miss career. I was like, yeah, should have been over there. Here I am. You said you wanted to go to the military, but it is like mm. accidentally finding yourself in a warfare that you can't get out of. Mm. <laughs> or, or win. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's fascinating, right? Because in, in a hospital, what, what really got me excited was integration and networks. And I remember like the manager at the time and, and he kept, going on about the network he was clearly passionate about about them and uh, he used to say if you control the network you control everything nothing can come on it nothing can get off of it it's like we we own everything if we own the network and I think you were trying to build some kind of empire or whatever but what what became apparent is is the more things you added to the network the more valuable um, you could make it and then you started looking at integrations you know hospital integrations and complex problem but it's far more mature than we are in like inter-organization integrations right we're not very good at interoperating with other organizations but inside a hospital it works really well you know it's quite stable it's she's still using old tech um hl7 and all that kind of good stuff but it, it just fascinated me that you could make simple changes that weren't very difficult and and that have a massive impact rather than what we see sometimes today, which is you come up with a very complex way of solving a very simple problem. Um, yeah. One of the things that you mentioned on the Health Tech podcast was uh, your parents' taxi company. <laughs> yes. Can you tell me about that? Because oh. I, I feel like that was your insight that computers could do something it amazing was. and interesting. Yeah. I was probably going to not mention that one, but uh, yeah. So <laughs> basically, uh, so the taxi thing. So I, I was only like, 12 years old, something like that. I, I was certainly towards like early teens and I'd been playing with computers a long time and, and programming them and learning how they worked and all that kind of stuff. And uh, basically my parents owned this taxi company. They were like left shorthanded and needed someone to answer the phone um, one weekend and pick up the phone and work out who were going where and what time and all that kind of stuff. And I was quite like confident as a teen. I didn't mind talking to people. So I, I agreed to do it. And they kind of like offered me money then. They were like, oh, I will pay you every week. If you want to do it, we'd rather pay you £5 a week than pay someone real money for doing a real job. <laughs> <laughs> nice. so, uh, so, yeah, I agreed to do that. What city is this? This this, this one in a little place called Shafton in Barnsley town, um, Barnsley right. in Yorkshire. So we were a local taxi company. 
but yeah, making a short story long here, we kind of had me in this role and now we're writing things down on a piece of paper. And one thing that became apparent is people kept asking how much it was going to be like, how much is it? How much is it to go from here to this place? And like, I had literally no idea, but then at the end of the day, um, when my dad came home, he had like all everyone's job sheets and where they went from and to and how much were charged and all the money. And and I kind of looked at it and thought, okay, it's taken us a long time to get from certain places. Sometimes we're late and I have to deal with that. And we're never able to tell people how much it is. And I knew the area we operated in. So it was very simple, really. I just divided it into a, a grid system. And I just wrote a bit of software where if I typed in um, which grid we were going from and to, I could give a much more accurate time of when we were going to be there, um, if we were going to, you know, need to say, no, we can't be there for half past, we'll be there at quarter to, um, or whatever. And yeah, I could give a much more accurate price of roughly how much it was going to cost. So people could have the right money and didn't have to tip the driver, which my dad weren't pleased about. Um, <laughs> so, so I built this software and then they sold the company and, and the software needed to go with it. And um, that, that were mine. So I, yeah. I made sure that I did okay. Out of it. <laughs> Written by a 12 year old. <laughs> yeah. It was so basic. I mean, literally, if I, uh, I'm just so glad it doesn't exist anymore. Because if anybody saw that thing, it would be uh, career ending. <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it solved a problem. And that's, uh, yeah, that's part of the fascination, right? Using tech to solve problems mm-hmm. rather than for the sake of it. That's the origins. Oh, no, I love that. Because I, I, I think I had a similar thing where um, my family ran like a graphic design company. And so I was, computers were introduced to me at a very young age and i had a similar thing where i was like 12 years old making decent money building um just doing de- desktop publishing sort of mm. building menus for chinese restaurants and things like that and they and real money would go in my bank account yep. and i'd be like wow and, and they liked it they were like oh this is great we used to have to like hand write all this or do it like back then it was like typewriter you know mm. it was amazing that anyone could print off a menu and uh, edit it and keep it updated and things like that. Yeah, it's great. That money as a child is so good, isn't it? It's like, look at all this stuff. For me, it just went into more computer parts, right? <laughs> yeah. I think it was like a really embryonic idea that people have these problems and technologies that have come along and it can actually help them solve it. And it's a, fr- as you say, like technology for technology's sake is like a bit of a frustration now because I'm like, no, no, there's, there are real problems here that can be sorted out and solved and it's just because people aren't building the things we need right. there, there are problems that can be satiated by this technology and then there's a there's this sort of like whole cottage industry around i don't want to end up in a rant really but <laughs> yeah it's interesting because when like after after i spent quite a lot of time in hospitals and um we we you know they would kind of like let's expand and take over the whole um area and we, we ended up supporting and delivering services to general practice, to mental health services, to the hospital. So it was a very uh, joined up way of working. And what fascinated me there is like, as, as things got bigger, they did become more complex, but the, the impact of things working together were, were really, really good. Like being able to send data from one place to another and it be there when a patient turned up and stuff that were really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I think what, what it made me realize is as, as I came out of that chapter of my life, I realized that I'd accidentally really understood and been on the front lines of pretty much all of 
what we consider the health service. So I'd been in general practice, like say mental health services, community, social care, hospitals, and I knew how they all worked at a fundamental technological level. And I were a super nerd, right? And <laughs> able to talk. And that became like my superpower where it's like, mm. he understands the system, he can do stuff and he can communicate. And uh, with those three combinations, I think that that certainly got, got my career going and made me start thinking about, okay, what should I do next? Like, where do I go from this? Cause it's kind of like a really big train set, but there's so much more to do. And that led to the the one, one, one work, um, which was definitely one of the, and still is the, the highlight of the career really when you take what yeah. one, one, one Tell does us about now. That. Yeah. I was about to say. Tell us about Tell that. Us that, that was the part of my, and that's the one that got you chatting and telling it everyone did. and effusing about. It was fantastic. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting story, 111, and its origins and, and how I became involved. And it, it was basically a pilot that the Department of Health came up with. And it was very simple. It was only a number of um, items in a service specification. They just wanted to solve um, the problem of confusion for patients. And, you know, 111 was um, a concept. It used to be called 3DN, three-digit number. And they wanted it to be um, three numbers that were identical because that means it's free for a patient to call. So any number that's got three numbers that are identical is free. That's the law apparently. And, uh, yeah, it had like, that was one of the specifications. So we knew we had to build something national. Um, but then we also knew other things had to be part of it, which is integrate with local out of our services and primary care. So straight away, you're looking and thinking, how is this going to work? This is this is going to be massive. And then it, it went even further and, and had things like needs to be able to dispatch ambulances without a delay. Sorry for all the beeping. Um, <laughs> and I, I was just positioned at NHS Direct at the time. I'd, I'd left um, the, the acute sector and wanted to try something national. And I'd been working quite a lot on the CAT-C integration, as it were known, which is when you call 999 and you didn't need an ambulance, they would transfer you into NHS Direct. Mm. And it was a small pilot. Does NHS Direct still exist? Is that No, it uh, doesn't. No. 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 no okay. Yeah. I, this might have been before my time because I've been in health tech kind of 15 years. Yeah, it, it was, I think, I mean, it were around a, a good decade um, before and it were an amazing service. And I think we some we lost some things when when it disappeared, but we also gained a lot. Mm. Um the difficulty with NHS Direct is it was a number it weren't always easy to remember um 08454647 and it did have like a really tight coupling with local out of hours services um and that's where it kind of stopped and 111 wanted to go further it wanted to be free to call it wanted to be a number that were really easy to remember like 999 everyone just knows it kids know it but it needed it needed to go further it were about urgent and emergency care not just not just like i need some health you know, help. I need to speak to someone. Um, it, it needed to go much further. It was kind of the bridge between primary care and emergency care. It was like meant to be in between those two and, and has delivered that. And uh, yeah, for, for me, it just, it became really exciting. So I've done the ambulance to NHS direct integration. So I knew how to do interoperability between two organizations and on a little bit uh, opinionated and, and I'd been around healthcare system and knew all the components that I'd learned. And it were kind of like, I, I think I 
you know, I think I know what we need to do here, how we're going to make this thing work when you could literally be someone calling in Newcastle or London. You're going to need an ambulance without delay. We need to make integration work. That's just a massive scale problem and it excited me. So um, I talked to the people running the program at the Department of Health and said, here's the things I think you need to be considering and um, the, the things that are probably going to make it difficult, such as what happens if someone's out of area. Like you can literally call 111 and be routed to the wrong provider in the country. You can end up, you know, in, in Newcastle calling and end up speaking to someone in London. It doesn't happen often anymore, but it's very real. Um, and yeah, I basically just laid out some key things I thought they needed to tackle. And the next thing I got asked, come and come and join us, come and do it, help us fix those problems. So I did. All right. So you weren't, you weren't invited to give your no. opinion on this. No. <laughs> That's even better. I just had a strong view of what we, we, we needed to do. And um, I worked on the pilot. So when it started, there were three pilots. There were the Northeast did one, Nottingham and um, that, that area. And I think the other one, can't remember where the other one was, maybe Lincolnshire somewhere. Um, and, and I'd been involved in one of them from NHS direct perspective because it were kind of like well we're going to replace this thing maybe we should work out whether it's the provider we need to change whether it's the service we need to change or whether it's a both or a bit of both or a combination so Mm -hmm. i had been involved in one of the pilots and obviously got the insight of nhs direct and how it worked so i knew we were going to throw some things away you know not meaning to by trying to solve one problem but then just introducing a whole load of other ones and uh yeah, it was fun. You know, I can remember walking into uh, to meet the people at the ambulance service, which is, there were 13 of them at the time. And the thing is with 999, right? It's the most loved service in the country. Mm. Like when you need it, they are there. And usually when you need it, you really need it. And uh, they're just adored by everyone. I mean, the, the NHS is adored, especially after um, recent years, but you know, then everybody loved the ambulance services and still do. And you were really interested, you know, me 10 years younger, walking into this place, uh, 30, still not shaving and telling them, Hey, I'm going to change how you, you integrate with external systems. You know, it's no longer um, the entry point to 999 is not just going to be 999. It's going to be this new service and we're going to um, dispatch ambulances or, or, request ambulance dispatchers at the point of need and we need you to be part of this uh, service and it, it weren't easy like it, they didn't want to do that um change yeah it, it was really interesting cause that that's what led me to understand user research and it was before it became a topic and, and gds paved the way and, and did such amazing work there but before then I was doing user research without realizing it and it's just because i didn't understand the domain so as i mentioned i've got this like intimate knowledge of how healthcare worked within all these different organizations. And then I'd gone and got the national view from NHS Direct's perspective. And I felt very um, nervous and, and aware that I didn't understand this world. So for me to go in and start dictating what we're going to do, um, you know, it, it would be the wrong approach. And I needed to understand their world to then be able to talk their language and understand their pain. And I spent time with all of them, all, all 13 ambulance services. And I didn't just spend it with the senior people. It was with the call handlers. It was with the clinicians. It was with the crew. And just really understanding how 
how it works. It's fascinating. It's like a massive game of SimCity to make it gamified, <laughs> um, you know, with vehicles and helicopters and maps and stuff. Um, but yeah, it became really interesting because if you think of the problem back then, what I found fascinating is, well, they don't want to dispatch vehicles because they've only got so many and it's a precious resource that needs to go to the right people. So we need to make sure the the quality is at the right level at, at the 111 side and that was someone else's job, not mine. Um, but then from a tech perspective, it were like, okay, so what is it you need to be able to send a vehicle to a patient? And we we talked about it and we had a list and we would have built some stuff, but we, we spent more time doing manual things like, well, let's just do the handshake over the phone rather than building tech. Let's, let's not build stuff. Let's work together. And when we want to dispatch an ambulance, we'll have multiple people on the phone. We'll all listen and observe what the conversation's actually like between the people dealing with this stuff. And we learned a ton. It was fantastic. We learned, you know, that sometimes scenes weren't safe to attend because people had a knife in their hand and had been, um, subject to a knife attack or people couldn't get in buildings because there were access codes all these things we wouldn't have put in this interoperability spec that i were designing mm. i would have missed those things um and it, it made it fantastic because the end result was like you could dispatch an ambulance from 111 but the clock started counting for the ambulance service once they received it and they'd got eight minutes to get to that patient whereas when they were hitting the stack in 999 world they had to triage them and get the vehicle in nine minutes. So there were savings to be had for both sides, right? Just by understanding how both work. So yeah, that's that's kind of what got me excited in that space. That is cool. That is super cool. So it got to a point where you where you left there? Yeah, well, it was interesting. So 111 had gone so far and had been around for a good five or six years doing that stuff. And, you know, there were some amazing people helped. It wasn't just me stuck in a room. There were some fantastic people. Matt Stibbs is one I'd shout out as, yeah. as a really core contributor to the 111 spec. He was one of the main suppliers in this yeah. space who embraced it. And, you know, he, he was fantastic. Massive shout out to him. Um, but yeah, it got to a point where it could be more, it could do more, but you know, it would time to let other people have a, a go at that. It would also a, a big chapter where I'd kind of burnt out. If I'm honest, I'd got to a point where mm. traveling the country, it's national trains away from my family, the kids. How, how long were you there? Uh, so 2010 through to like five, I think it was. Yeah. So five, four, five years. And it was like, I look back at it as one of the highlights. Like I think I checked the stats a while ago and I don't know, it was some in the millions of ambulances that had been dispatched with a red one response, meaning it's seriously probably critical uh, that a patient gets a vehicle quite quickly. And you, you think of like, wow, the, the work I did that sits behind the magic button that people press to make those vehicles arrive at their house um, yeah. very, very quickly when they've called potentially the wrong number because they should have called 999 maybe um, maybe they, they shouldn't have um but yeah it, it just makes me that proud of that that whole chapter it also, it also scares the crap out of me to be honest but, <laughs> like did you did you feel that when you were doing it i mean yeah. there was uh, i went to a mongo db conference the other day and they had the people there from dwp digital uh, the, the department for work and pensions digital and they do all the payments for um you know people's uh social security payments and things like that and then this massive payment processor and he was saying we just can't get it wrong you you, you know yeah. it's the difference between someone not being able to feed their kids in the morning because the money didn't go in the bank account 
And he's like, we get yeah. it wrong. I, I think I'd rather work on a nuclear power plant control rod <laughs> control system <laughs> than that. And probably the same with 111. I, I, there's some solace with us because it's all like appraisal stuff. I guess rostering is kind of critical. But with appraisals, no one, no one's going to die if someone's appraisal is day late. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Was, was it scary working on a system like that? If I'm totally honest, like looking back, I would say I should have been scared. Mm. But at the time, I, will, I probably had a little bit too much, um, bit too much arrogance about me and, and feeling yeah. like I could just do it and, and, and that and, you know it's, it's where arrogance or confidence really i just felt like we could make such an impact if we made it happen and in no way shape or form did i ever think i couldn't do it and i couldn't yeah. lead it it was, it was total confidence it reminded me of watching cristiano ronaldo take a penalty he were never missing it, right. it weren't even in his mindset yeah. that he were going to miss <laughs> anybody else would crumble <laughs> i was about to say it reminded me of the chernobyl engineers oh no <laughs> I have no Cristiano Ronaldo as well. Let's get that out there. <laughs> one went well, one That's went badly. So well. <laughs> well, I think uh, the, the interesting thing is, you, you know, when I talked about the research and doing things on the phone and working out what we needed to do, as it, as it happened, doing it that way around meant that was the default way we operate. So we designed for failure. I didn't actually think about it until after the fact, but it was totally designed for failure because that's how it worked. And then the tech were built on top to make the process more efficient yeah. rather than building for tech's sake and then having procedures and processes up uh, like in place to back it up. It was completely the other way around uh, yeah. how it should be. It's almost like a tech kind of or service Hippocratic Oath. It's like first do no harm. Yeah. Like make, make sure you can do whatever they currently do. Like yeah. don't leave them with a big bang switch on when they're like, uh, I used to be able to dispatch an ambulance at this point and I That's can't it, now because <laughs> you removed yeah. that button. Yeah, exactly. And the, the good thing is like in, in 0845, the NHS Direct days, you could literally get to a point where NHS Direct know you need an ambulance and they could potentially ring 999 on your behalf and kind of have a three-way conversation. Sometimes you were told to hang up and ring 999 mm. and you'd never know if the patient actually did, yeah. you know, even, even though, you know, it weren't bulletproof. I mean, it, it was really robust. Um, I never saw a serious incident around the, the tech on, on the stuff that I'd worked on. I'd never seen an incident around the manual processes failing. So, you know, it, we did a pretty good job, but yeah, the only reason for leaving is, is the, the 111 kind of um, initiative when it, when it came in and, and became a national service, and 0845 disappeared and uh, that's NHS Direct. We, we lost the the web platform. So they they had something similar to like the NHS app. It obviously didn't do the things the NHS app does, but it did allow you to go through a uh, go through a triage, an initial triage and work out if you needed to speak to a nurse before calling. So it was like an alternate channel. Mm-hmm. And one of the programs that I were asked to look at after that, so I left 111 the telephone service, but went into 111, the web platform. And um, all, all I did is uh, work on an alpha, a prototype, and take it up to that point to you know validate the hypothesis. Is 111 online going to be a useful service? Is this consistent triage model worth doing? Um, is there some user needs and problems we can solve? Can we solve stuff for the system? And, and that went through a GDS alpha assessment and we passed. And... I didn't really know who GDS were before then, even though I maybe should have done. I was just so 
you know, focused on on the ones side of things. But I got taken aback by how much they were doing, how brilliant it was, how they were fixing things at a basic level, fixing like the basics and working on uh, user needs and just really presenting the best of how digital can support citizens. And and I got really like uh, starry eyed about it all. Mm. And it was frustrating because I were operating the 111 space, which weren't there. And um, the SRO of 111 at the time be- then became the SRO of NHS.UK, which had had, uh, I think it were like six or seven attempts of trying to transform it from what it used to be choices, the the thing that we all used to use into this new thing that that's there now. And it were one of those again, where I just wanted to be part of it. And I kind of were like, right, I've done with ones. I've got it to this alpha stage. It's, it's time for me to just not focus on that and pick something new up. So one, 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 uh, we're done. And then it just, UK became the, the next thing. And it, it were kind of like, um, it, we were mainly uh, Dan Sheldon and Alice Ainsworth and myself were just kind of all in different positions. So we'd got cabinet office, GDS um, with Dan and Alice at the Department of Health and me in NHS England, looking at the 111 and NHS.UK stuff. And the embryo of it was like, we need to, it needs to be different this time when we do NHS.UK, we have to kind of emulate some of the good stuff that GDS did and we had to bring that in. And and mm. we set off and again, these are these are unsung heroes that um operated in the shadows and um you know they deserve a bit more credit than I do on this one. And and you know it became a thing and it got going and we got traction and you know the the NHS UK alpha team was spun up out of that which did amazing work and showed how it could be different. And then I then you know uh, retreated back into the shadows with Rachel Murphy and uh, kind of became a right-hand tech guy to help steer the the way we were going to take the architecture of NHS.UK forward um, from what it was to what it is. And again, another fantastic chapter working with super talented people mm-hmm. who just needed empowering to do the right thing. They didn't need the answer. They just needed the empowerment. Mm-hmm. And you see, you see the results of it. That's cool. Wow. So you were involved in some of the, oh, I'm going to get the acronym wrong, the PDS how let me get the personal but yeah personal demographics service is that right um so i, I weren't involved in pds the service itself um i mean the, the the team that look after the spine again phenomenal talent and they do amazing work but what i did do is recognize the importance way sooner than i think the world did around identifying a patient and that being able to flow through the healthcare system. So when I were looking at the 111 spec, you know, we, we were back in the days where government mandated things in, in service specifications, which I didn't really necessarily agree with, but that, that power was there. And I used it to mandate PDS across urgent and emergency care. And looking back, that's one of the like really small decisions that had such a fundamental impact. You know, it meant people had to really uh, change the way they were doing integration across urgent and emergency care. So yeah, I, I didn't really get much involved in PDS, the service itself. I just were one of the people that recognized uh, we needed to like ingrain it in the service throughout. Yeah. I think it was when the vaccinations were rolled out and there was a lot of people that need to look up ah. their NHS number 
Yes. Um, oh. so, and you were kind of like, ah. Oh. A little vlog post. I was proud of my part in that. Yes. I think that's where I've linked you to that. Yeah, no. and, and in fact, I tell people, like, when they're looking it up, I'm like, oh, yeah, my friend was involved with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's, yeah, that part of it. That's a slightly different part. So, yeah, that's more about, like, integration with PDS is, is hard. Like, it, it is hard. And that's why, you know, when I just talked about taking that decision with 111, it was difficult because it takes a long time to, to integrate with it and get through assurance. And the thing that Kevin's referring to is we, we kind of put find your NHS number. So NHS Digital put find your NHS number online so people, citizens could look up their NHS number. And it became, I, I created a little hackable prototype of how I could effectively take a person's demographics, use that service, use screen scraping technology and our RPA and basically just get the NHS number without having to do all that integration, all that assurance. And, and it, it just makes me question, you know, sometimes like assurance is there for a very good reason. And 111 was assured to, to standards as well, which I, I led on. And uh, it, it's super important, but sometimes I don't know if we look at assurance and think, is it too much? Can we do less? What's the minimum? Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, it kind of, yeah, we, we probably needed to look at that. And they have done like, you know, the work coming out of NHS Digital with their APIs and things now is, is again, great, great stuff. So hopefully some of my uh, online activity contributed to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm banging the drum from a staff side to, and I, I use PDS as an example to say, essentially it's, it's easier yes. to find a doctor as a patient than it is a member of staff of the NHS. So if I yeah. was looking up any doctor, I could, you know, you could find them on PDS, probably couldn't really easily find an identifier for them as an employee. So yeah. the data is better as a patient as, as an employee. And so I, I sort of bang in the drum and I'm like, look, we've got this fantastic service for the patient side. We need the same thing for the staff side. You need to be able to yeah. need this reference point to, you know, for everything for the, I, I mean, I sort of disagree with the kind of idea of staff passport in, more generally because i won't go into that but (laughs) you know you need this you need this reference point for working out what roles people will have like how they can move between hospitals whether they're trained up whether you know they've got appropriate training scheduling uh you know capacity and demand whether they have access to your epr system based on Mm. their role in the hospital whether they whether they are allowed in that ward you know everything everything comes back to who is this person and on the patient side, we seem to have got that right now and running well. On the staff side, as an employee of the NHS, it's not there yet. It's interesting because there were like, I remember a long time ago, before NHS Mill became a thing. And one of the things with NHS Mill when it first came out is it, it was very difficult to replace Microsoft Exchange with NHS Mail. And uh, yeah, I'm off on a tangent here. Um, but yeah, we... We looked at that and there were basically some money that Connecting for Health were offering um, to be part of an early pilot. So, you know, myself and the trust raised our hands to say, yes, please, we'll take that. That that kind of concept of an NHS mail address for life was meant to be like, we can give people an identity and that would link to Active Directory and then we'd have federated um, approach to um user accounts across the whole NHS. I remember it really well. And it didn't quite go far enough or, you know, I can't, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know what the reasons were, but what I do know is as the the first, one of the first, well, we were the first trust to take it. 
And it came to me as like, it was my project to, to deliver. The first thing I did was register my email address as Tony at NHS.net. And the second thing I did was change the policy that it had to be your first name and your surname. Um, <laughs> there, were, there were three of us that did that. And uh, yeah, so there was, uh, there was a Tony and, and two other people with just the first name at NHS.net. And uh, it's surprising how many places that got me into um, <laughs> just being Tony at NHS.net. <laughs> <laughs> and I had that for like a, a good, what, 15 years. I had that email address, uh, TonyNHS.net. But when I jumped out, um, I, uh, I lost it, which made me really sad. Oh, so, yeah. That is a cool, that is a cool thing to have. Yeah. <laughs> I've got checklists and snooker. I'm, I'm a massive fan of checklists and I've been learning to be a pilot for a number of years. And I remember getting in a plane and being given this checklist um, by my flight instructor. And at first I'm like, oh, checklists, like they're just boring things to, to work down. I need to memorize them and and never have to deal with that thing again. And over time, I've, I've kind of learned the lesson how important checklists are. And there's kind of like two modes that I've seen them operate in. There's one which is you do everything by memory. And then you use the checklist to just validate quickly. Did I do everything I'm supposed to do in the, the right order? Sometimes is important. And then there's the other mode, which is you follow the checklist and you do each thing after you've read what you need to do. And both those work really well. So I just became fascinated by the whole checklist thing. And, and then I read a book, uh, Checklist Manifesto, as a result of my obsession with checklists, which again, just blew mm. my mind. Mm. And I was like, these things are awesome. <laughs> and uh, it's one of those things like where, you know, when I'm starting an aircraft up now, I use the checklist and I, I tend to, I know what to do. I can do it from memory, but I actively use the checklist and I just run my thumb down and I do each thing in turn and I do it in that mechanism. If it's an emergency and I'm practicing an engine failure when, when I'm at altitude or whatever, then I do the other way around. So I'm into do everything by memory because it's, you know, time is of the essence. And then um, I'll use the checklist to quickly just make sure I did everything. Did I miss something um, or, or maybe just to prompt me to make the right mayday call or what, whatever it is that I need to do. So, yeah, I just became fascinated with with checklists and like I say, read the book um, on the checklist manifesto and started applying them to so many different areas of my life. And yep, uh, including snooker. Including snooker. So, yeah, I do play snooker and... <laughs> Like it's a little bit sad, really. Um, but but snooker, what what I realised is like I needed to be consistent. I was watching the professionals and how good they are, and or like they're they're awesome. And I was just reading different things and trying to up, up my game. And I could see that you know a lot of things were like amateurs and not routine enough. They're not doing things in a systematic way, such as looking at the shot they want to take, like looking at the ball, getting behind the ball they're about to hit, looking at their angle, working out where the white's going to be, standing behind the white, addressing the shot, you know, all those kind of things. And uh, so I created a checklist and um, it's here now. It's a nine point checklist. So, it's kind of decide what shot you want to play, choke your cue, line up behind the shot, stand behind the white ball, get down on the shot, make sure your arm's tucked in, your grip's loose, head still, and then play the shot. Wow. And, uh, and and I had that checklist and I was playing um, pool and playing snooker and I kept the checklist there and I kept doing the thing until it became second nature, which it is. Uh, now when I just approach it, 
and it did improve my game. So I'm like, checklists are awesome. We should yeah. do them for everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I have them for my morning routine. I have them for when we're going on a family trip. So I don't forget things. It's just like Me too. checklist, checklist, do checklist. You? Are you a yeah. checklist fan, Mariah? Absolutely. Massive are checklist you? fan. Yeah. Amazing. And See, what's, what's your favorite checklist, Mariah? Well, because um, I'm obviously from a different country. <laughs> so when we used to travel quite a bit back to America, where I, yeah, I have a very long checklist. Just Amazing. making sure it's really important. And I just literally duplicate it and depending on the season, you know, just update it. Yeah, it's so good. I think yeah. the other thing as well, when like you've got me excited about aviation, this is not in my notes. Um, <laughs> what got excited, what gets me excited is like how much effort has gone into the, the interface design of an aeroplane that, that you wouldn't necessarily think about. Mm. So there are usually, well, in the planes I fly, there's there's levers for um, throttle and the mixture. And you really, you know, if you want to bring the power back, then you really don't want to be pulling the mixture all the way back because the engine will cut out. So the the design of the the, the knob on top of the, the lever is completely different. It's a different color. It feels different. It looks different. You're not going to grab the wrong one by accident. And... You know, it's the same with the the instruments, and the, they've all got a very specific purpose. And it just it just blew my mind that simple things again can have such a fundamental impact to how you function and how you do your job. I think that some of that is applied to things like uh, anaesthetic machinery yes. and, and things like that, isn't it? Um, the idea that they've got certain buttons that you can't get confused. It seems there seems to be like this connection between. Uh, aircraft safety and medical and health safety. In fact, I, I, there's that black box thinking book by Matthew mm. Side. Have you ever read that? Not read that one yet. It is on my list. Uh, yeah, that's really good. And um, and the checklist manifesto is Atul Gavandi, is it? I think got that one is right. awesome. So, and he he's a medical doctor, isn't he? I, I, I'm, I'm a very disorganized person. I don't like checklists. I don't, I don't even have a watch <laughs> because I, I don't, I don't like structure in my life. It, it, because the fear of God into me, but, uh, <laughs> even, but I do like to take influence from, a, from mm. what other people say. And you, after you said about the snooker thing, it's funny, I've been playing football and when I play football, I, I wouldn't say it's like a checklist, but I'm like, if I'm having a bad game, I kind of go, right. Okay. Am I getting the basics right? Am I getting my yeah. knee over the yeah. ball when I strike the ball and, you know, like just, uh, am I am I looking at the ball? Like, I know that sounds daft, but when yeah, like make sure your eye is on the ball. Mm. Like there's a sort of like less, and it it just resets you. I think obviously you don't really run around a football pitch with with a checklist in your hand. <laughs> yeah, there's Thank a bit of a for, mental. Yeah. Okay, here's the basics. Here's <laughs> the basics yeah. right. Imagine there, uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan walking up and uh, just putting his checklist at the side of his seat next to his <laughs> yeah, water. Yeah. <laughs> I bet he does though. Like I, I reckon tennis players like so much stuff. Like um, uh, what's it called? The chimp? Is it chimp in your brain or something? There's a book about sports psychology. Mm. Chimp. Chimp paradox. paradox? Paradox, yeah. which is all about kind of making sure you get your mind in the right place and not letting your um oh what's that part of that brain the limbic limbic brain is it, oh god there's doctors I have no idea yeah. Yeah. your deep ancient brain like making sure it doesn't sort of take over and i would have thought in all sport you kind of got this thing to just make sure you're checking through and keeping everything in line. check this are cool so I, I reckon Ronnie O'Sullivan probably does do it, just does 
instinctively. And does you mentioned Cristiano Ronaldo when he's taken a penalty? Like they always do this thing. It's like okay, let's take three steps back, one yeah. to the left. Okay, right. It's a Tuesday, so I'm going to hit it right or something. Like they'll have a checklist. Definitely, he'll have a, he'll have a process. Definitely. Yeah. Or the uh, rugby player's name, the one that um, you know did well in the World Cup. What, John, Johnny Wilkinson, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he used to very systematic, didn't he? I, re- I remember watching him. Everything was routine. Every single time he took the kick, it was like the same thing. Mm. Um, There's got to be a bit yeah. of superstition behind that as well. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is what what did you what happened? What have you been doing recently? So you set up your own company, mm-hmm. and then that got bought up. What what happened when you left? NHS Direct or the NHS Digital and one 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 and all that stuff. It's interesting because when when I was in um, some of the the roles that I've already talked about, the funding weren't there for the substantive roles because they were all kind of pilots and tests and hey, mm. we're going to try doing this thing. So none of them were like programs that were set up for the long term. It were like mm. let's see how this goes, which meant they had to use consultants and contractors. And as I mentioned earlier, it were me jumping at the work rather than. I'm a contractor looking for work and I followed whichever route I could do to get it, uh, to get the thing rather than mm. becoming a contractor. And then after I'd done all that stuff, I realized a lot of people kept coming saying, Oh, can you help this problem? Can you help with this? And who oh, you understand, you know, ones, nines, whatever. And, um, I just got a lot of demand, I guess. And, uh, I decided to set up Vix digital. Um, one of the things that became apparent to me is engineering excellence, as we think of it, wasn't how I were thinking of it. And I think often we can build the wrong thing really well. And I think engineering excellence to me means really embracing the problem space and working out how we can use engineering to solve that problem with excellence rather than just building a really good, solid thing that will scale to billions of users that will never use this service. So um, I really wanted to embrace that mentality and kind of create that culture of you know, solving the right problem the right way, not just building something that were bulletproof for Facebook scale that we weren't going to deliver. Um, mm. So yeah, that, that's that's what started Vix Digital. It was just really working out how we could supply more people with that culture, that ethos, that skill set, and and mm. you know some of those people went into NHS.UK core teams and worked with the the superstars like uh, Rob Sinclair, who operates behind uh, behind the shadows as well in the shadows. Um, mm. He's still there now, doing amazing things. And yeah, some of some of my team, the Vixers, were in in that team working on doing some of the heavy lifting that needed to be done again working with rachel murphy from different we we partnered with them on on some initiatives to really just solve some fundamental technological problems where people weren't able to just take a step out of the world and think how might we solve this in a more effective way um and i'm sure you both know rachel's all about delivery and um you know, working with her was something that I absolutely loved and we partnered with them on many, many things. And it's just that experience that became much, um, much bigger. Um, we became a team of people that realized we could solve problems in a product way rather than just being engineering resource. We wanted to go into the product space and um, we'd been working on the, the GP platform, which I've tweeted quite a bit about recently. And it were all about like, how can we fix these, general practice websites, which are an absolute 
mess really not all of them but the landscape is a bit of a mess it's not consistent for patients um, it's not consistent for clinicians it's not consistent for practices to manage that content and understand how to solve problems for themselves so we just wanted to take that approach really and and, and go for it and take all that knowledge and expertise we've got of the system working with nhs.uk it, it's a national delivered platform nhs.uk it would never really intended well when i were there to go to local level and and i feel like that's needed we've got a lot of we've got a lot of people um paying for the same thing over and over and over again and and i know this feeds into your public money public code thing uh kevin which is mm. you know we, we shouldn't be doing that and you know vix is a commercial entity um we we looked at that and thought how can we you know be more open how can we build once so we looked at um, what should general practice websites be? I did some research on them and started thinking about the problems that need to be solved. Um, and we set off on that journey. And then COVID kind of hit uh, at the point where we were just about to push the button on the, the platform. So we paused. Um, general practice had too much to worry about. And then, you know, we're back with a vengeance and we we got acquired by Livy. But yeah, just, just to finish the website thing, it's like what we realized is if we solve something for a practice what, what what we often do in the website space with general practice is we set up we have consultancies that um a feature factory so we request something and then they build it and that gets deployed and then another partner might request something similar and is built and deployed and the reuse happens behind the scenes and what we want to do is take it forward and say well if we're solving a problem we'll solve it but we need to solve it in a way that's going to help everybody not just you and that's that's the that's the agreement you have coming on this platform we don't build things because you want them we build them because they solve a problem which you will help us understand we will help you solve and then everybody gets the benefit of that and and that's what the, uh, the yeah. platform is yeah so you'll back me up on this like you commercially when i talk about public money public code and open source i think there's like a a reluctance is a bit like, well, what's this kind of like hippie platform? Why, why are you doing this? It doesn't make commercial sense. But I don't know. I don't know how you feel, but when we build software, I don't feel like we actually sell software. I feel like we, the thing that we sell to our clients and customers, is our knowledge yeah. of those systems. Like we know when it goes wrong, like how to fix things, or when there's a feature request, or there's, and there's always something new. Mm -hmm. There's always a new requirement. There's always something that needs changing. And it's it's that innate kind of knowledge of the system that you're selling. I, I, we sell brains. We we yeah. sell, we, we rent out really bright people and we rent out brains. <laughs> I, I totally we, do, agree. we don't sell software. Do, is that how you feel? Because yeah, you know, you're in a similar position, right? You're you're a tech, health tech. It's interesting, Kevin, because like we went from consultancy where we were purely about selling brains to become product focused, which is purely about selling software. And I, I never thought of either of them like that. I did think of it more of selling brains and expertise for that engineering excellence stuff I talked about. I think for me, when when people buy the general practice website they're not buying the software they can't afford to buy the brains so we're giving them a timeshare effectively it's like here's a slice of brains that collectively the more people that's on it the more brains we can put on it and the whole system becomes a better like better mm -hmm. for the cause so it's that for me it's just really solving it for everyone and and often people look to the center and say that should be solved centrally because 
they're the only ones who can kind of put that kind of money behind it and build a business case to solve it for the whole country. And I, I don't believe that's the case. I think if no, you if you take it forward and, and do the thing you've just said, then you, you can get the same effect. Yeah. I also thought like um, we, we put in our execution essentials, like a commercial element, and we did this periodic table of kind of public money, public code. Mm. And down one end is like, this needs to be a, a group of essential elements to this. Is It actually needs to be a commercial offering. And part of that is because when I clock off at the end of the week, like my feet are held to the fires of needing to be a commercial success. Like we, we've got yeah. payroll, we, you need to get the money in, you need to actually sell product, uh, which means actually when you build things, making sure that you that you have a sales team to pick up the phone and start telling people about it, advertising, you know, Mariah, marketing, you know, do, doing stuff like this. There's a commercial pressure to get that out. And I don't think that's always appreciated when people go, oh, we'll build this thing in the center. And you could do that. You could build like this perfect thing that's built in the center, but they, they don't tell anyone about it because there's no there's no pressure. There's no commercial pressure to get out there and, and tell anyone. So somewhere there's like this sweet spot of people who yeah. have got their feet held to the fire, but have got their heart in the right place. And they, they feel like they can do more for this sort of public institution from the outside. I totally agree. And I, and I feel like there's people like me, you, Tony, Rachel, you know, a lot of the GDS bunch. There's a lot of people who, who feel passionately about trying to push that in, a, in that direction. It's super exciting, isn't it, as well? I, I love this stuff. And I think for me, like, like the, the stress of being a commercial organization is quite high as you've just articulated and and you know that definitely affected my own mental health like thinking about oh if we don't win some more work i've got to pay people what's our burn rate all those kind of things and mm. some people love that stuff for me that didn't excite me what excited me is being able to fix the problems that only that have to be fixed from the ground up and not from the top down and mm. it, it's kind of like one had to lead to the other and, you know, Livy have, have acquired Vix Digital now, which I'm super happy about. And that pressure's kind of gone. So we've still got the same mission. We've still got the same people. Everyone's still there. We've got more people and mm-hmm. we're just going to accelerate and accelerate. And, and that were part of the, the lure there, which is, well, I don't yeah. have to worry about, you know, all the 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 payroll myself because there's other people to do that now. There's a big yeah, machine yeah. that can help with that stuff. It is. It is super exciting. I love it. And I love that there's so many people that are trying to trying to push this thing forward. Like it is there's definitely this little community. I didn't I don't think I realized that you knew Rachel and and then there's like Marcus Bohr and then there's uh, Matt Stibbs that you mentioned as well. I met NHS Hack Day and it's actually quite a small community when you look at it. Yeah. yeah. In fact, Matt Stibbs, when I went to NHS Hack Day and I uh, took his I did a Twitter graph I did a social graph mapping thing yeah and and I looked to see what communities existed and uh my co-founder Phil used to work for Adastra yeah yeah which I think he used to work at so there was all there was you could see on the graph all the connections there and things. And Adastra was the uh, the predominant supplier of out of hour systems when when I were doing the one 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 architecture design and and that's where like you know, Matt, one of the unsung heroes of, of urgent and emergency care, he were there from an Adastra supplier perspective and he mm. totally bought into it and embraced it and we became good friends out of it. So, uh, yeah, we even had breakfast the other the other week, uh, cool. just reminiscing over all the things we've done together. Can I ask you about, I, was, I, I got caught in a little bit of a, a rant the other day on Twitter where 
someone said, oh, what would you teach digital leaders? And I was like, I feel like they should know how to code. <laughs> I yeah. didn't actually I put it more stronger than that. You should be able to code. <laughs> and there was a bit of pushback. People were like, I don't think that's quite right. <laughs> but I didn't, I don't mean like that people need to know how to code. I feel like when I'm chatting to you, I'm talking to somebody, and and Barbara, our CTO, has this like they love technology, they love the power of technology. And there's a bit of a sense, I feel sometimes that people who can code and the and the engineering, you know, the, the engineering bunch over there, that they don't know about user design. They don't know about, uh, you know, trying to understand the actual story. So, you know, the product design and, but you do, right? I mean, this, this, this is actually one of the things that you do develop when you're coding. You're, you, no, but no engineer wants to build something that's not going to be used. Absolutely. All right. And we've, we've all learned the hard way that you spend like two months building something and you go, ta-da, and someone goes, oh, that's not what I wanted, right? Every, every engineer has kind of experienced that sort of build process. <laughs> and so they, they've all, they've because of those battle scars, they're actually really uh, tuned in to user stories and working out requirements and requirements capture. And I just think there's a bit of a dismissal of that whole skill set and a bit of a misunderstanding that you you can assemble a team of people together who are non-technical and they can do the user requirements capture they can do the service design they can do you know all of the things and and then once they've decided it then you can just go and get the code monkeys to go and implement it at the other end oh kevin <laughs> am i allowed to say we could cut that whole section yeah. i was no, talking I to Naomi this morning i was like i think you should I, keep I, it there, there was someone i was talking to this morning who, who should be nameless and <laughs> they were like oh, i was talking about their job they're a consultant for um the NHS, they're like private consultant. And he said, well, my job's a bit woolly. You know, I sort of do like user-centered design. And he was like, oh, am I what you tech people do and stuff? But uh, it was really kind of a bit dismissive of the technical side. Oh, <laughs> I was like, I God, you, you know, if I went into a mechanics with dodgy brakes on my car and they went, right, we're going to look at your brakes, but we want to really look at how you feel about your brakes and the, and the user <laughs> journey of using your brakes. And I'd be like, yeah, but can you fix my brakes? And they'd be like, no, nah, well, we're going we're gonna to just analyze how people, we're going to ask a panel of people who also use brakes, how they feel about <laughs> it and like engage with the wider community of brake users. And they are like be post-it notes all over the wall. And at the end of it, like someone would go, well, we've decided that actually brakes just slow you down. And, you know, <laughs> and I just and all the way through, I'd be like, "Can you just fix brakes?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm not saying you don't need all of that stuff because you you certainly do, but I just think there's a dismissal of. I, I'm only, I'm saying this to you mm. in this podcast, but partly because I remember Valentine's Day, um, we did a health tech recording, didn't we? Me, you, and Marcus Ball. And I think you were. <laughs> We were you so were, in love you, back then. <laughs> you were, you were uh, 3D printing a Valentine's Day present for your for your wife. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. You know, and that's that's the sign of a true geek, right? So <laughs> that's why I'm saying it to you is that you you are somebody who, who codes and does the yeah. actual tech side of things, and then as you said, appreciates the kind of service requirements and and designing things that people actually need. 
Does that resonate with you, or am I just an angry man on the internet? No, you you don't sound like Jeremy Clarkson, so you're all right. (laughs) Uh, It's um, yeah. I mean, I totally resonate with this, and I think I think there's like a number of models that I've seen and work you know, differently. One of the things I've seen is where engineering is a feature factory. Like you say, we, we have this big, you know, which way up is the sky and and we'll, we'll work out what we're going to do. And everybody starts at the very basics and it takes a long time to get to just building what we knew how to build and knew we should build right from day one. And that like, just saying, just do it to people and go on and build this thing is is the wrong thing to do what what the old process in my mind anyway what i think we're trying to do is we're trying to learn what what's going to solve the problem and sometimes the quickest way to learn that is to build something even if it's the wrong thing mm. and observe it being used see it being used understand we got this wrong and then we'll fix it that's that's totally fine and i think you know i'm not dismissive of of design and products and engineering it's more like it has to be a team sport and, you know, GDS talk about this, make things open, make things better. And it's more than just code. It's being open in the way you're working. It's bringing engineering into the decision-making. It's bringing product and design into the decision-making. It's not a pipeline in my mind. Sometimes you do need to build cars and you need to build them quickly. Sometimes you need to stop and say, we should probably build a car factory so we can manufacture cars. Um, in an automated way. And it's just really understanding the problem at hand and working out what, what's the right way to solve it. Um, but yeah, I, I totally resonate with what you're saying. We, we I've seen all these models and they all pop up and I don't think there is a sweet spot. Um, well, there probably is a sweet spot, but I don't think it's as simple to define as that's what you need to do. It really depend, depends which domain you're in um, and what the skills of the team are. And yeah, I think people don't necessarily need to be able to code, but I think if you're open as a culture and engineer is showing how they're building and showing the work they're doing, then people have an appreciation for it. Just like I have an appreciation for medicine. I've spent a lot of time with uh, people in NHS pathways, understanding the medicine behind the algorithm. Um, so I can understand the impact it has and, and why it is the way it is. I think it's just having the time and, uh, respecting other people's disciplines and getting to know it usually helps make things better. It's, it's particularly difficult in medicine, though, to... Yeah, you can't argue with it, can you? Get in their shoes, because you um, you sort of expressed it, like your ability to have kind of like an off- orthogonal skill set, right? Like to know tech and then to be able to communicate with people and to sort of understand how services work in mental health and acute and things like that. But, you know, when you built that taxi thing for your parents, you were a taxi dispatcher and your ability to play at being a taxi dispatcher and also be able to build the software to fix that problem was an alignment of two two things. You you Mm. were literally in the shoes of someone who had the problem and and somebody who was able to fix the problem. And so you solved your own problem. I find with, with health tech and hospitals is you can't, Part, you can't play at being a doctor. You can't. I can't go and spend two days a week being a doctor and find out what it's like. Yeah. I, can't, I don't really. I can't play at their career. I think you can watch them though, can't you? You can. You can take, like it's that thing where when when I talk about the nine 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 service, I could have tried to solve their problem, but the, the key there was sitting with the people that 
that were doing the day-to-day job and observing them. So like as the taxi dispatcher, I was both things. I couldn't ever be the 999 call handler dealing with the 999 crisis, but I could sit at the side of them with the headset on and spend seven hours Mm. watching them do their day-to-day job and internalize that as someone who could then go and solve that problem. And I think that's where like, when I say it's a team sport, people, engineers, we should all be exposing ourselves to the problem and not expecting the problem to become nicely packaged and then build the solution. Cause it never works that way. That's, mm. that's a feature factory. It just doesn't work. It's like a favorite saying from halt and catch fire. Do you like what yeah. I did there? Nice um, nice. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Like in halt and catch fire, one of the things that gripped me almost immediately on episode one or two was, um, the, the main character. Yeah. He, he basically stands there and he says, computers aren't the thing. They're the thing that lets you do the thing. And, yes. and it, well, when he said that, I was just like, what is this show? Like, I didn't even know what I was watching, but I was like, what is this show? This this guy's for me. So I want to I want to know him. Yeah, so for the benefit of the audience, Horton Catch Fire is the best TV show you probably never watched. I conquer. Have you seen it, Mariah? I have not. No. It's my it's, it's pro- so good. I think it is my favorite TV show. Wow. And it is mine as well. Francesca also loves it. Although I think House of Gucci has just overtaken it, which, uh, <laughs> uh, which is concerning because she really identified with the main killing Uh-oh. character. Uh-oh. Uh oh. Kevin Knight. Yeah, I know. I can never <laughs> divorce her or I'll be assassinated. But Horton Catch Fire, I think, really, it's a great TV show. It's, it's brilliantly written. It's, it's about the birth of the computer industry, essentially, isn't it? Uh, Texas yeah. Instruments and IBM and. Uh, like the birth of Apple and Yahoo and uh, it sort of finishes just as Yahoo's coming in and they're like, Yahoo's the most amazing thing and like nothing's going to beat it. You know, it's like the end. So oh, wow. yeah. It, um, yeah. Spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. It's a bit like watching <laughs> Titanic because obviously, you know, you know where <laughs> these things go. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but it's, I think if you're a tech founder, it's probably particularly resonates because it's a lot about the relationships of your staff and your employees and, and business and like your hopes and aspirations and that fear as well of making payroll and like a deal that doesn't come off and <sighs> Like, so probably, I don't know about you, but it resonated with me at like a gut visceral level. I was like, oh God, that's my life in some, mm. some, some degree. And, and then the, and the successes of different groups of people and how they wax and wane and, and, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. It, it's a fantastic show. Um, I just agree with all that. It's just all the same reasons. I mean, yeah, for the audience out there, if you if you resonate with Kev or me in any way, then this show is for you. <laughs> it's so good uh, for all those reasons. I mean, and I, the music's I loved it. great. The music's fantastic because it goes all through like the seventies, eighties, nineties, like early nineties, oh, and then cool. they go off to watch like Star Wars, and so you know. Also, if you're of a certain age, like is all the toys that you used to love as a kid. And- I think the bit that I liked about it is there's like the, the trio, isn't there? There's the visionary, the engineer, and the prodigy. And yes, like I look at them and I could see parts of all of them in myself. And I know we're looking at it and like some days I feel like I'm the visionary. Sometimes I feel like I'm the prodigy and some days I'm, I'm just the engineer. I say just the engineer, I'm the engineer. And, um, that's kind of how life started. And I look at it and every day it feels different. But then the bit that blew me away is 
like it were all about which one of these people's the main character and who's this about and 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 then it's like donna it's the wife of um of the engineer that actually you know um rises up throughout the the seasons that you watch and becomes a really major part and uh driving force behind the success of the companies and yeah. you know she's kind of dismissed in the first season as being the the wife of the engineer who is kind of looking after the kids and stuff and seeing her rise is yeah, yeah. i just think it's and she's brilliant. also like this awesome engineer in her own right she, isn't she yeah. she absolutely is and and you, that just doesn't shine through at the start and and as she comes online and saves the world and does different things it's yeah i don't yeah. want to spoil too much but you know i don't want to spoil too much but there's also like kind of characters who have great success and then have a massive fall from grace but they've 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 kind of retained their integrity of being a really good friend and confident of people and they and and sound like a religious parable but there's there's definitely a message in it about maintaining friendships between no matter what organization you're in and not burning Mm. bridges and you know and people going through different points in their life where they're really stressed and like perhaps they're acting out and in a, in a way, but like kind of keeping a faith in them, and I don't know, yeah, like there were, there were there felt like there were life lessons in there about retaining friendships. Like like you you've worked with with like Rachel, you know, um, and all these different people. Like Phil, my co-founder, worked at Adastra. There's a, there's all this kind of link up. You never know when your path's gonna find being crossed back again with yeah. with someone or someone you're working with and the the characters that do well in that show are the ones that keep friendship and keep honorable and keep a good reputation uh throughout absolutely yeah this is so good like people should watch it I, i'm gonna yeah. watch it again I, like it will be the third time i've watched the whole i'm definitely gonna watch it again it's just it just does everything for me and, and then there's the romantic side of the computer industries and then what they're doing and you know that when they're fixing things that's broken and it's like they need to have it working by tomorrow otherwise they're gonna lose the deal and i've just been in that space so many times thinking ah oh, gotta pull an all-nighter on this and yeah it's got it all, guys. Watch it. <laughs> it has. Are you going to watch it, Mariah? Probably. I am, actually. I want to. You guys have talked enough about it. Not just you two, but Francesca as well. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it might it. even work at another level for you because it's obviously the... the. How old are you, Mariah? I'm not going to tell you. Okay. <laughs> Basically, um, you were around in the 80s, right? No. Maybe. Just a child. <laughs> 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 but it's obviously it's got the America of the eighties as well, like if it's set in like Texas and then California and yeah, tech Texas instruments and probably stuff in there that you'll go, yeah. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I didn't like I've never other than yourselves, um, your good selves and, and your lovely wife, uh, Kevin, I've never really met anybody else who's watched it. And I want I've got um on my other laptop, I've got a sticker. It's the Mutiny sticker, you know, um, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the company when they set up Mutiny, the, the product. And I had that sticker on my laptop and I went over to Sweden and, and I walked into this room and straight away one of the engineers like, Alton, catch fire. And I'm like, we're best friends. <laughs> yeah, best juice for life. Someone else knows what it is. This is amazing. It's uh, so good. It's a little uh, cult of its own. Yeah. <laughs> I've got an illegal NHS Ubuntu sticker on my laptop. Yeah. Oh, have you? Yeah. Amazing. One of the illegal wow. ones. 
we didn't talk about my part in that. I mean, I didn't have a biggest part of the the two rebels of Marcus Boren and Rob Dyke, but uh, I was certainly there in the background with them too. Oh, as well. I didn't yeah. know that. I knew you. Yeah, I know, obviously knew you knew them very well. But. Yeah, yeah. We we were uh, I were involved and not not a big part, but yeah. We, we create some stickers and things as well. Yeah. Uh, my father-in-law owns a print company, so it comes in handy when oh, I need stickers. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we'll keep that in mind. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we're part of the... There were a, I can't remember the person's name now. It's looted me. Um, I forget, but there were, there were four people that were on it, and obviously Rob and Mark were the visible ones. And, uh, yeah, the, the takedown notice and all that kind of stuff were pretty sad at the time because it, it was very well intended as a concept i think it was i don't know sometimes it's like the the strategy you play to try and get these things adopted and you know it, people were out to make a point which was pretty sad because the intention was fantastic what did you think at the start of your career that you no longer think and what do you think and, and the other one <laughs> the opposite wow <laughs> or something like that like what would I tell my younger self? Yeah, maybe. I mean, what weren't you expecting? Um, I weren't expecting us to make things worse before they start to get better um, and in quite a spectacular fashion. And what I mean by that is, uh, I mean, this is another little rant, but thinking like green screens. And, and I remember watching um, a receptionist uh, check a patient in. Uh, I say receptionist, a, a woman working on reception. And she will basically checking them in and doing all the things that they do at the front of A and E. And I was just spending time observing, and she was able to do it so fast. She wasn't even looking at the computer. She could touch type. She knew what keys to press in which order. It was complete muscle memory, just like I was talking about in an emergency situation when you're in a plane or whatever. And and it was just so good. And then I remember when we introduced it, it introduced a computer, a PC, not a green screen terminal, and then watching the same person and how slow it made her operating. And it weren't just because it were like new and, and different. It was the same for a long time. There were just all this other stuff in the way vying for her attention. Um, and yeah, like windows and pop-ups and this and email and stuff. And it was like, she's no longer doing the thing we wanted to do and she was doing really, really well. Um, so I think mm. what, what would the takeaway be for me? It's kind of like, just look for the unintended consequences of what you're building and does it really solve a problem for the people that are using it and is it the right problem? That would be it for me. I'd love to do it all again, like go back and not the podcast, although it would be great, <laughs> the whole career. Thank you very much. Good fun. Thank yeah, you. Fun. Thank you. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. Tony gave some incredible insight into working within the NHS and how to make positive change throughout. Follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Yates. You can find out more about SARD by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at sardjv and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week. Mm-hmm.